Go ahead and grab your seat, and you can take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are up at the front here. They're going to walk towards the back. You can feel free just to slip your hand up into the air, and we'll make sure that they get a Bible across to you. We would love to, to make sure you're able to follow along in God's Word as we are back in the book of Genesis. And if you don't own a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you. We would love to give you a copy of God's Word, and we would pray that it would be a huge blessing to you as we pray that it will be for us today as God's people. This has already been a really awesome um, afternoon, a really awesome service with so much celebration. Amen? I mean, I mean, how can you not get excited and celebrate six people declaring their faith in Jesus Christ? That, that is awesome. Um, amen. Praise the Lord. And, and it's, it's, it's sweet for us. Every year we do our kind of ministry year kickoff. And this year we are celebrating 13 years as a church family, which is another praise the Lord. Amen. And every year we love to kind of kick off our, our ministry year with a theme. And we try to draw that theme out of where we're going to be in God's word and kind of where we're at as a church. And you may have, uh, hopefully, you get a sticker when you walked in here, guys. Do you see that? Everybody a sticker? Hold it up. You got a sticker. Okay, here's what I like to do with this. You don't have to do this, but this is what I like to do. I take this and I put it in the back of my Bible. I stick it there. And if I showed you the back of my Bible, I've got like every year kind of, I can trace where we've been in God's word. You can stick it on uh, your fridge. You can stick it on your child's forehead. You can stick it anywhere you like. But I, I love it because it just helps me remember in a very simple way what God is kind of pressing into our hearts as a church family. And last year, as we were in the first half of the book of Genesis, we focused on the, the topic or the theme of foundations. And, and that's obviously important as we look at the very first book of the Bible, and we, we were able to trace some incredibly important and very foundational themes and topics and aspects of theology. Uh, we saw God giving us the foundational principles or truths upon which all of the world is built. We saw, for example, the creative activity of God, that God spoke creation into existence. We saw the pinnacle of God's creative work in humanity made in the very image of God and given a special role on this earth. We saw so much about the sovereignty and the power of God. We saw God laying the foundations for humanity in terms of gender and sexuality and marriage and family. We saw the foundational problems in this world all traced back to sin and Satan. But we saw, maybe most importantly of all, that in the midst of all of God's creative activity and the fall and sin that's corrupted this world and this universe, God made a promise to his people. He promised that he was one day going to send the seed of the woman, the very first woman, Eve, and this seed, this offspring would come and he would crush the head of the serpent. He would put an end to all of the sin and the death and all of the problems that that creates for us. You might think of it like this, the very first chapters in the Bible are really about laying the foundations, but they present to us the promises of God that will ultimately change and transform the universe. 
In the second half of the book of Genesis that we are beginning today, we begin to see promises being fulfilled in some very unique and powerful ways. So we move from the laying of foundations to seeing over and over and over again that our God is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful to every promise he has ever made. He is faithful time and again. He never disappoints. He always comes through. And Genesis chapter 21 really puts this idea of the faithfulness of God on full display. And it really is a chapter that celebrates the faithfulness of God. It is more than anything a celebration that our God is faithful. Throughout this year, we will continually see that God is faithful even when we're not, but that God is calling us as his people, you and me, if you're in Christ today, God is not only faithful, he's calling us to be a faithful people. I trust your heart longs to live your life to the fullest. I trust your heart longs to live out of the deepest sense of why you were created, the deepest purposes for which you were created. And what the Bible reminds us from the very first pages is that you can only do that when you see who God truly is. And one of the most foundational aspects of who God is, is that he is faithful. So we need to explore that truth in order to live from that truth. And I want to show you from chapter 21, four responses to the faithfulness of God in order to be faithful to our God. First, notice this, that because God is faithful, you can take him at his word. You can take him at his word. I want to just read the first seven verses. Here's how it begins. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Notice that. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet, I have borne him a son in his old age. I just want you to let verse 1 sink in for a moment. Uh, Hopefully I I highlighted for you um, the emphasis on the fact that God said, God promised, God did. It's, It's very hard to kind of miss that, and that's kind of the point of these first verses. The Lord visited Sarah as he said he would, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. Well, what exactly did God promise her? If you remember the first kind of portion we looked at in Genesis earlier, uh, we saw that God had made a promise to Sarah. Actually, a year ago from this moment, God said, I'm going to visit you, Sarah, and you're going to give birth to a son. Now, this was staggering news. It was so staggering, you'll remember, you remember her, her response to this declaration? She laughed. She laughed. It, it, was, it was that unbelievable. It was that ridiculous. It was that outside of the box. It was that impossible. 
Because Abraham and Sarah, they weren't spring chickens. They were old. I mean, Paul says in the book of Romans, they're as good as dead. In other words, there is no human possibility that they can actually conceive a child. This has to be the supernatural power of God. And she laughs. Of course she does. She's 89. Abraham's 100. But the promise goes beyond that. Remember in chapter 12, God had called this man Abraham out of the land of Ur, where he was this pagan idol worshiper. And God made to Abraham a promise. And in this promise, he told him that he was going to give to him three things. He was going to give him offspring, he was going to give him land, and he was going to make him a blessing, a blessing to the nations of the earth. And so what we're beginning to see right here is the initial fulfillment of that promise, specifically the promise of offspring. But over the years, this promise of offspring, it did seem so unlikely, it seemed so laughable. And this word laugh, I don't know if you caught it there, it's there a couple times, it's actually there more than you can see. It actually becomes a literary feature of these first seven verses. It's like Moses is calling you to pay attention to this word laugh. It's prominent because it draws attention to the reality that when God says he's going to do something, you can take that check to the bank and cash it every time. No matter how challenging you think it may be, no matter how incredible, no matter how improbable or even humanly impossible, the point of this section is very, very clear. You can take God at his word. And what do they name their son? Well, they named their son Isaac, but again, if you studied earlier with us when God said that you're going to name him Isaac, we we said this. What does the name Isaac mean? It means he laughs. So again, we see laughter taking prominence in this section, and I just want to note that this is simply, listen, this child Isaac, every time they said his name in Hebrew, here's what they're calling your child, you're going, come here, he laughs, come here, he laughs, come here, he laughs, he laughs, stop touching that, he laughs, obey, every time they said his name. They were being reminded that our God is the God of the impossible, that our God does exactly what he says. They were being reminded, listen, over and over again, every single day, that you can take God at his word. He always comes through. He always does what he promises. And in a sense, you can kind of think it like this. It was a perpetual reminder that God's the one who gets the last laugh. God gets the last laugh. Don't you love what she says in verse 6? This is so good. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. See, he, he turned her laughter that was once kind of the laughter of doubt into this laughter of joy. And not only that, but she goes on to say that everyone who hears will laugh over me. They're going to look at me, this old lady, and they're going to look at this child and say, where'd you get that baby? I'm like, I, I gave birth to this baby. No, you didn't. Where did you get that baby? No, I'm telling you, God, I'm telling you, God promised it. And then he told me in a year he's going to come back and I'm going to have a baby. And I know I'm postmenopausal. It's not possible. And we can all laugh together. Isn't that amazing? Look what God has done. It's such a great, a great little section. And, and, and kind of ironically, did you kind of catch verse 7? And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Uh, God did. 
That's the irony here. God's like, I, I told you this would happen. And that's exactly what happened. And so as we just kick off a new year, I just simply want to reinforce who we are as a church. If, if you're a part of this church, you know this, but I hope this is part of the reason you're here. If you're new here, this is so important for you to understand. Maybe you're visiting the church. Maybe somebody's brought you out because somebody was being baptized or there's free food afterwards. Either way, we're grateful you're here. Maybe there'll be a barbecue next week. I don't know. <laughs> but listen, I think it's so important for all of us to remember what exactly is going on here, what exactly we believe. And so if it hasn't been clear to you even already today, I just want to reinforce this truth. We are a church that believes in God's word. We believe the truth of God's word. There are a lot of voices you can listen to in this world, but none is more important than God's word. We have a culture out, you know, out there right now that's saying, listen, go tell your truth. Listen to your truth. I, I, I love you. I don't care about your truth. I care about God's truth. God's truth is the only truth that ultimately matters. God's truth is the truth upon which the foundation of the earth was laid. When God speaks, he always and only speaks truth, and we ought to be a people who pay attention to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Psalm 12, 6 says this, the words of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 19, 7 says the law of the Lord is perfect. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says that every word of God proves true. Church, listen, this book right here, what we hold in our hands, this is not some human invention. This is God's self-revelation. God wrote a book. God spoke. And God has delivered to us life changing and life-giving truth. We got to witness that today in the waters of baptism. God spoke, people believed, and their lives were forever changed. Church, this word here is perfect. It is without error. It is authoritative. It is sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. It is breathed out by God himself. And as such, church, we stand upon God's word. We stand under God's word as our authority. And as a result of that, we must be a people who are in God's word. So that God's word can abide in us. This is why we devote so much time to God's word in the life of this church. This is what the, the word of God wants for us. Listen to what Colossians 3.16 says. This is speaking to the church. Paul says that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When Paul thinks about the life of the church, he thinks of the word of God as being so central, so precious, and so life-giving. It literally bleeds into everything. And so in this church, here's what you need to know. We will hear it. We will study it. We will memorize it. We will meditate upon it. We will pray it. We will sing it. And we will, by the grace of God, believe it and live it with every fiber of our being. For man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our prayer needs to be, God, feed us your word. 
saturate us with your word. I mean, you noticed, I hope, if you were here, and, and, and it was wonderful to see this place so full so early, but we began our service with a call to worship Mark led us in that with the New City Catechism. Um, If you don't know what that is, it's a phenomenal resource, 52 questions, 52 answers with scripture attached to them, and and a, a catechism is simply a way to take biblical truth and to teach it in a way that's easy to grasp and retain. And so here's what we're going to do. As a church, part of the way we're going to kind of keep driving God's word into us is we're going to begin every Sunday with a call to worship from the New City Catechism. So here's, here's, what I, here's why I'm saying this, because you need to get here early, okay? Some of you are like wandering in at announcements. No more, okay? Get here. As now, there are exceptions. I get it. Not, not every day goes as well as you plan. But here's, here's what I want you to see. I want you getting here and so that you can hear the word of God and allow these truths to penetrate your heart, to wash over you, to prepare you to respond in praise and thankfulness to our God. And for some of you, here's what I want to encourage you to do. We actually have some resources out of the, the connect, our, our table out there, New City Catechism resources. I want to encourage you to pick those up. 52, one a week. Go through it with your family. We're doing that as a family in my home. Just get the word of God in you. Fill your life with more of the word of God. We're so busy filling ourselves up with so much junk. Every one of us could you devote more time to filling us up with more, with more truth. We believe we can take God at his word because God is faithful to do everything he promises to do. So we are going to strive to be faithful to our faithful God. And by the way, that doesn't mean when it's easy. It also means when it's hard. And we see that next because, listen, God is faithful. You can trust him in his ways. Now, something unique happens in the text here. God's fulfilled his promise, but all of a sudden, things get a little bit challenging or difficult. Look at verse 8. It says this, And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You can stop there. Now, we read this, and I don't know about you, but initially it's a little bit jarring. I mean, this sounds so harsh. He's going to kick, kick out Hagar and, and Ishmael, who at this time is a teenager, to cast them out into the, the wilderness? That, that's, that's like a death sentence. It's a place of desolation. It's a place of danger. There's no protection out there. And yet, this is exactly what Sarah calls for. But there's more going on here than first appears. They're at this celebration. You can imagine this massive gathering, and Abraham's family and friends are all there. It's a, it's a little bit of a party because Isaac, this promised child, has been weaned. And that means this. He's made it past this kind of really important stage of infancy where many children die. 
So there's this massive celebration, this kind of party is taking place, and then Sarah looks over and she sees the two brothers, but what she sees is not this kind of playful laughing, like maybe you're inclined to think like there's two brothers over there just fooling around, you know, messing around with each other. That's not at all what this means. She sees this kind of laughing that's really better understood as a mocking, scoffing, a deriding. You see, the problem child, Ishmael, is tormenting the promised child. And so she sees this and she immediately reacts by saying, cast this slave woman out with her son. Did you notice that? With her son. Uh, Parents, you ever pull that move with your spouse? You know, you watch your kid doing something kind of little, wreaking a little bit of havoc. You're like, uh, your son's over there. You better go take care of that. Now, here's the reality. It was Abraham's son and not her son. But remember, this was actually her idea in the first place. And this whole situation really is the result of Abraham's and Sarah's failure to trust God and his ways. The reason they're in this mess is because they didn't believe God initially. Their faith was feeble. It was frail. They decided to take matters into their own hand. And anytime you do that, anytime you fail to trust God in his ways, take matters into your own hand, I promise you it's never going to end up well. Especially when it requires you to take on a second wife. Abraham obviously struggles with casting them out, and and you can get this. Abraham actually, he sees this as some kind of a great evil. That's kind of the intent of the word that he uses here. And and we understand this because we, we, we see his paternal instinct to protect his son, but I think what's really important to see here in the life of Abraham is that his paternal instinct to protect his son takes a back seat to his spiritual instinct to obey his father. And this is not easy. The Lord actually confirms that Sarah's plan is the right plan. He comes alongside and he reveals to Abraham that this is the way it has to be. And I just, I I look at this and it reminds me, and maybe it helps you think about this, sometimes obedience to the Lord is hard. Sometimes it's incredibly costly. Sometimes it's really confusing. And I think it's that way because you know, if we're honest, we don't see what God sees. We don't see the beginning and the end. We don't see the plans that he has. We see things from a human vantage point, and he sees things from the divine vantage point. But one of the things this text reminds us is that God knows exactly what he's doing, even when we don't. And the reason we can trust him and obey him is not because we know what he's doing, but because we know who he is. He is faithful. Do you see how this becomes the grounds for uh, Abraham and Sarah's obedience? They're looking at God, and they're saying, God, this, doesn't, this seems crazy, it seems wrong, it seems harsh, it, it, seems, it seems problematic, but at the end of the day, God, we, we know you're faithful, you've been faithful through our entire life, you're not going to disappoint us now, so we will trust you even when it's hard. I, I think, that, let me give you a principle that, that maybe is helpful in guiding your life when it comes to obeying God. Listen, if you do what God says when it hurts, it will hurt less than not doing what God says. 
Get that? Let me, let me say that again. If you do what God says when it hurts, it will hurt less than not doing what God says. Okay, we've often said it like this in the history of our church. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. And not obeying God is sin. It is sin. And every time you choose to not obey God, it will always lead to some kind of suffering. It may temporarily work out for your benefit, at least as far as you can see, but I promise you in the end, it will not work out for your benefit. It will not be a blessing to you. In fact, in the scriptures, obedience is always the pathway to blessing. There's something important going on here, though. So maybe you're still wrestling and thinking, like, how, how could God be affirming this, this plan? And here's what we need to understand. You see, Sarah, she watches this kind of sibling rivalry unfold before her eyes, and what she perceives is a threat to the promise of God. Do you notice the language she uses here? For the son of the slave woman will not be heir with my son Isaac. She appeals to the promise God made. And when God answers, notice what he affirms there, for through Isaac, he says, shall your offspring be named. In other words, there's something going on here as it relates to the inheritance, to the promise. And what we're being told here is that Isaac is indeed the promised son, not Ishmael. In fact, Paul, he references this passage in Galatians chapter 4, and he actually helps us understand the nature of what Ishmael was doing to Isaac. Listen to what he says. I'll put it on the screen. Galatians 4, 29, it says, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, look at the word he uses here, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. It's talking about Isaac. So also it is now. So when Paul kind of zooms out and he looks back at this history, what he sees happening is the persecution of the promised offspring of Abraham. And what that draws us into, listen, is all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where God promised there was going to be a cosmic spiritual battle over the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman would always, until the return of Jesus Christ, be at war with the seed of the serpent. And right here, Paul is saying that's exactly what's happening. And so what he's saying is this. If, if this child is allowed to remain in the home, it will inevitably put the promised one, the promised child, in jeopardy. And all you need, you're like, how do we really process, how do we get to that answer? Here's how we get to this answer, okay? It's important to understand the greater context of the book of Genesis so we can see the patterns that are being unfolded even in front of our very eyes right here. Sibling rivalries are actually a very prominent theme in the book of Genesis. We've seen this after the promised seed in Genesis 3.15. What happens in chapter 4? We have Cain and Abel. Okay, so, so the younger brother, Abel, brings a sacrifice to God that is pleasing and acceptable. And what does his older brother do as a result? He kills him. And by the way, the original audience who would have received the book of Genesis first, they already had kind of a, the, the history here. They already kind of knew a lot of what was going on because they were in the wilderness after the Exodus. So I want you to think about the rest of the book of Genesis. We're going to see sibling rivalries between Jacob and Esau. And, and there's, listen, and Jacob's a scoundrel, no doubt about that. But what we find out is this, that the blessing is going to go to the younger, not the older. And what does Esau want to do to his brother? He wants to kill him. 
And then we get to the very end of the book of Genesis and we get this amazing story about this young brother named Joseph, right? Who is so smart, he goes to all of his older brothers and says, guess what guys, I had a dream and in my dream, you were all bowing down to me. What would you do to your little brother? Now, he may have deserved a beat down, but they wanted to kill him. And that's what they tried to do. And in each of these instances, here's why I'm pointing this out. In every one of these sibling rivalries, what was at stake was the plan of redemption and the promise of God. And if there was success, especially when it comes to Jacob and Esau and Joseph, then the plan of Jesus, the savior of the world, would not have come to fruition. And so what is happening here is a protective measure. It had to happen. They had to be cast out. And what's really interesting is that Paul, in the book of Galatians, he actually uses this story of Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac as a, an allegory. He actually calls it that. And he tells us there's a way that we can look at this story and we can see kind of a deeper spiritual principle or meaning that's at work here. And ultimately what he does is he uses these two individuals, Sarah and Hagar and their respective children, and he tells us that they ultimately represent two different paths of salvation. And they're two very, very different paths, but they're the only two paths. One path is demonic, and the other path is divine. We have first the path of human achievement, and second the path of divine accomplishment. Hagar and Ishmael, uh, they represent, according to Paul, a faith plus works kind of salvation, or a works righteousness kind of salvation. They're a reminder that any attempt to achieve salvation through human wisdom or human ways simply will not work. It's kind of like you can think of, 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 of you know, human achievement-based salvation. It's, it's kind of like putting together Ikea furniture your way, okay? I mean, your way, not the way the experts tell you to in the instructions. It's like you dumped out the box, you got all the pieces, and you saw a piece of paper there and said, well, I don't need that. That's why some of you are bald right now. <laughs> Just like, how do they do? I think the motto of Ikea should be stylish but sanctifying. <laughs> now listen, the point of the instructions is, listen, trust the experts. Follow the instructions. And Hagar and Ishmael, they kind of present this way of salvation that says simply to this, I got this, God. That's what they're saying. I got this, God. I'll figure this out, God. I'll be good enough, God. I'll, I'll, I'll abide by the law. I'll work hard enough. I'll do the right things. I'll be a good person. I'll achieve my own salvation. And here, Sarah and Isaac are upheld as a statement that reads this, God, you have to do this. You see, and when it comes to salvation, it's, it's not simply that you can trust God in his ways. It's that you must trust God in his ways. 
There is no other way. Jesus says this in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. And so, you know, that analogy of, you know, many paths, every religion's a different path that's eventually leading to the top of the mountain. It, it's, there's, there's, got so, there's some truth to it, but it couldn't be more wrong in terms of the destination. All of those paths aren't going up to the same peak, the mountaintop. They're all descending downwards to the same destruction. The only path that matters is the one where God himself comes down from the top of the mountain who traverses all of human life and who meets us in our deepest need and in the midst of the darkness of our sin. He comes down for us because we could never, ever climb our way to him. And in order to be saved, listen, God says you must believe. Acknowledge you're a sinner. This is God's way. This is the way you must trust. Acknowledge that you're a sinner, that God is holy, that Christ died on the cross for your sins. As we saw people profess that today in the waters of baptism. You declare that Jesus Christ rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin and death. Because he lives, you can live. And you cast out the slave woman. That's how Paul uses the phrase. Cast out, listen, any attempt to earn your salvation apart from the work of God. It has to be all of him. And if you find another way, something to add to the work of Jesus, some kind of path that seems good and right in the world's eyes, or even in some other religious context, I'm telling you right now, it's a path that leads only to death and destruction. Follow the way of Jesus. And it's interesting, here they're cast out into the wilderness. But it will not be the end for Ishmael. As a son of Abraham, he will still be blessed by God, even though the blessing to the nations will not come through him. What is the hope then for people like Hagar and Ishmael? People who seem so far off? People who are forced to wander out in the wilderness? Well, here it is next, because God is faithful. Listen, you can turn to him in the wilderness. Your, your Bible may kind of start a new paragraph in 15, but I, I think the paragraph break, those are artificial paragraph breaks, just so you know, they're interpretive decisions. I think the paragraph break makes more sense in verse 14, and it's because of the word wilderness that we're gonna see that brackets this section. Let's read it together. It says this, so Abraham rose early in the morning, and took bread and a skin of water, and he gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. And she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. 
And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. They're sent away, again, this this death sentence in the wilderness. But Abraham, he gives them some bread and water. It's not enough. And so they find themselves in this utterly hopeless place of destitution, this place of death. They're literally knocking at death's door. And so she takes her her teenage son, who's clearly about to die, and she lays him under a bush, maybe for a little bit of shade, a little bit of relief, before he ends up fading into death. She goes a bow shot away. She can't bear to watch her son die. And as they both lay there crying, God hears. God answers. And it's a throwback to the first time that Hagar was out in the wilderness. All the way back in chapter 16, she was banished for her behavior then as well. And once again, God shows that he is merciful and gracious. He hears the cries of the afflicted. That word hears is prominent in this section. God is seeing their condition. He understands what they're going through. He knows that they're downcast and they're literally walking now in death. And the voice from heaven speaks. An angel promises to them life and blessing. And in verse 17 and 18, the scene, it powerfully portrays humanity's plight in God's provision. You see, apart from God's divine intervention, humanity is wandering in the wilderness of sin. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are all in our transgressions, we are dead in our transgressions and sin, we're without God, we're without hope in this world, we're alienated from the life of God, we are separated from him, and we're all like the walking dead, wandering around in the wilderness, just waiting to truly die and be separated from God for all eternity, spiritual death. But... In that kind of hopeless condition, in that kind of alienation, this passage gives hope. It tells us that there is the opportunity for life. There is the potential for rescue. There is the necessity of deliverance, and it's offered freely to all who will take it. He sees the sinner. God hears the cries, specifically of the boy You know, it's really difficult as you look at this passage to determine whether or not Hagar's is truly uh, saved, if we can use that language, if she's really a child of God. It's very hard to make that kind of decision. It's, It's unclear if she actually ever truly embraced by faith the promise that God made to Abraham, the promise of Isaac. In fact, there's much evidence to the contrary. I think we can glean from this a principle. There are many who want blessings from God but will not ultimately turn to God. 
There's so many. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I want all the good things God can give me. I want the, the provision of God. I want all the earthly riches. I want everything that I can get from God here and now. But I don't truly want to turn to him. I don't truly want to submit to him. I don't truly want to follow him. I only want what he can give me. I don't actually want him. But the grace of God here in this section points to God's desire, to God's promise to bless the nations, to gather a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And I want you to, to notice how God does that. So track with me. We've, we've seen the promise to Abraham in the promise of offspring, of seed. Now I think the focus is more on the, the blessing to the nations. How can God bless the nations? I want you to see how salvation works or is supposed to work here in this passage. Verse 19, he opens her eyes. And what does she look over and see? She sees a well of water. And this is fascinating because the text kind of indicates that the well had already been there. She just couldn't see it. God had blinded her eyes, but God supernaturally opens them. God will so often, I think, bring us to the brink of death so that we can find true life. God supernaturally allows her to see what she previously could not see. It's the same with everybody who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. But what she sees is a well. She sees water in the wilderness, the source of abundant life. You'll notice on our, our logo that we have some symbols on there that are unique in this section of Genesis. One of those symbols is the symbol of a well. And that's because throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, wells are going to become this prominent place where we see the provision of God. Throughout the entire scriptures, actually, wells are going to become a place where God actually meets with people and offers them salvation. Wells and water are incredibly significant. They push forward the story of redemption and the plan of salvation. And so what do they do? They see this well and they go over and they fill up their skins and they drink. And if you're here today, if you sense your plight, if you see your spiritual death, if you grasp your hopelessness in this life and the next, if you see that you have been in the wilderness and you've been wandering and that there has been nothing in this world that can satisfy your soul, it's because you were made for more. And God says to you the same way he offered to Hagar and Ishmael, you can turn to me in the wilderness. You can cry out for help. You can see the provision of life that he offers in Jesus Christ. It's amazing that in John chapter 7, Jesus, he's at this Jewish festival, and he cries out in the middle of this ceremony. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He is the fountain of living water. He is the well without end. He is the one who satisfies the deepest hunger and thirst of your soul. And it is him alone. And if you come and take from him, he promises you will never thirst again. He will provide everything you need in this life and the next. Christian, if you find yourself in the wilderness of this life, 
And let's be honest, sometimes this, listen, this isn't just about unbelievers who are in the world. Sometimes as believers, we feel like we're walking in this wilderness. I think that we need to understand that God may at times drive us into the wilderness in order to remind us that he is all we need. God may push you into the wilderness. He may take things away from you. He may force you, listen, to recognize that you cannot depend on anyone or anything but him, and only then will you find the satisfaction that your soul delights in. Let me just draw one more parallel from this section. I think it's really awesome that God sends an angel to announce the provision of water and the hope of a future. But God is not sending angels to tell the world of the hope that they can find in the wilderness. God is sending people to announce the provision of the water of Jesus Christ. God is sending church, you, and he's sending me. He sends us out in the wilderness where we are called to proclaim, to go, and to tell, and to welcome people to come and drink from the fountain of living water. Finally, because God is faithful, you can thrive with him in the waiting. This last section at first seems disconnected, but it's really not. We've seen the focus on the Abrahamic promise or covenant of, of seed and of blessing, but now Moses is calling us to pay attention to the land promise. In verse 22, it says that at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with, <clears throat> excuse me, with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because they are both, both of them sworn oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abimelech, this Philistine king, he gets in a little bit of a fight over a well. Again, wells representing the source of life. So they're both kind of in the land, but they're neighbors, and they're trying to figure out how to live together. And nobody really owns the land, but this, this Philistine king recognizes that there's God's blessing has been upon Abraham. There's kind of this tacit acknowledgement that there's something unique about this man. But what we see here is that Abraham is still a sojourner in the land. 
He does not have the fullness of what God has promised. And the truth is, he will not see it in his lifetime. The promise of land is pointing beyond what he can see in the moment. It's actually pointing beyond this world. And so he goes through this process of making a covenant with this this king, and they agree to live amicably in the land. But the covenant language, I think, is intended to remind us that God has ultimately made a covenant with Abraham and his offspring, that one day God will allow Abraham and all of his offspring to inherit the promised land. But not yet. They have to wait. And so what does he do? While he waits. Isn't it interesting? He goes and he plants a tamarisk tree. He plants a tree. A tree in the ancient world was a symbol of fruitfulness and prosperity. It was a symbol of thriving. And he's acknowledging that here, even as a sojourner, with God by his side, he is going to thrive because his God is faithful. Even though he doesn't have the fullness of the promise, even though he's waiting for all that God will give to him, he is not just sitting back and doing nothing. He is going to walk faithfully with his God. He is going to live for him and his glory. Planting a tree is also a sign of permanence and longevity. It's a sign of his rootedness in the land where it tells us here that he stayed many days. You know, it's kind of like when you move into a new subdivision. If you buy a house in a new subdivision, at some point, they're going to come along and they're going to plant a tree on the front of your lawn, right? Why do they do that? Because they're thinking down the road, aren't they? I mean, they're thinking years down the road where one day that tree is going to flourish, it's going to thrive, and it's going to be strong and rooted just like this community. There's a future dimension. And they're looking forward, anticipating what will one day be. They take an acorn and it gives birth to an oak tree. But you have to wait a long time to see its fullness. And the author of Hebrews draws this out in relation to Abraham. And I wanna end by simply reading from Hebrews chapter 11. I'll put it on the screen because it really does fill in this picture. It says this, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God." By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, Abraham is being taught the fullness of the promise still awaits. The son that he has is pointing to a greater son. That the blessing that would come through this son, it's pointing to a greater blessing. This land that he's sojourning through, it's pointing to a greater land. And he knows that even though this world is not his home, he can thrive because he has an everlasting God who is faithful now and faithful forever. And church, this too is our hope today. All the promises of God find their yes and amen, their perfection and fulfillment in the greater offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Through him, all the offspring of Abraham, those who believe in Jesus by faith, will become heirs of the promise. We receive the blessing and we look forward. We await a better land, a greater city. And there, in that homeland, there is a stream of unending water that will never run dry. And there, there is a tree of life that will never be uprooted and will nourish God's people. Because there, in that place, God will dwell with us and we will look upon the face of Jesus. God is faithful. Because he is faithful, we will take him at his word. We will trust him in his ways. We will turn to him in the wilderness, and we will thrive in the waiting. And while we wait, like Abraham, we will worship our everlasting God, the God who is faithful now and faithful forevermore. Let's pray. God, you are faithful to the very end. We thank you that you are the God of promise, and we thank you that all the promises of you, our great God, find their yes and amen. They find their telos, their fulfillment, their culmination in Jesus Christ. And we know that because they do, we will spend all eternity in the new heavens and new earth praising you, our faithful God. And until that day comes, will you find us faithful here and now. We offer you praise for you are the everlasting God, faithful to the very end. Receive our praise now, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.